News Talk 1110-993-WBT, The Pete Callender Show. I'm the Pete of the show. And I want to welcome back to the program Rich Rubino. He is the author of the book called The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, Political Trivia on Steroids. That's not an endorsement of illicit dr- uh, drug use. However, Rich, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thanks so much, Pete. Doing good. Great to be here again. Uh, great to have you back. So how did uh, how's the book doing? It's doing great. I um I got a lot of um I got, I've been speaking I've been speaking a lot. Um I've actually been doing a lot of senior centers that type of thing, doing a lot of radio shows. So it's been great. It's kind of a reprieve because everyone else, you know, politics is certainly so divisive and serious. This kind of puts it on a different um, level, and it's something that I think has actually gotten a lot of, um, if you can believe this, bipartisan appeal. Yeah, I mean, it's a trivia book, so it's got all, yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's and it is huge. I mean, it's like, I don't know, three inches thick. It's like a phone book, if anybody remembers <laughs> what those are. Yes, yes, absolutely. absolutely. It's, um, you know, if you can ask a question, it's something that you can actually, people from different sides of the aisle can actually kind of discuss, but it's interesting. It's one of the few things that I think can make someone like Rutherford B. Hayes sound interesting. <laughs> well, let's not get crazy. All right. Uh, so uh, Benjamin Harrison. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, he's uh, that is actually uh, was that the guy I'm thinking of? Who is he? The one that ran over somebody in the stagecoach? <laughs> no, that was Franklin Pierce. Yes, Franklin <laughs> Pierce. Okay. Am I see? I get them confused. All right. So uh, I, I I am also curious. Are you the guy like at the family reunions and parties and stuff? Like everyone wants to come up and try to stump you with political questions. Uh, occasionally, yes, people will ask, or they'll say something, I've just, you know, I've just heard this, or it'll be some sort of a fact, they'll say, like, you know, I just heard this about Andrew Johnson or something, it's usually something that they had heard, and they'll say, is this true, and then I'll have to kind of elucidate on it, so it does happen once in a great while. Okay, it's kind of like the, you know, I, was, I was thinking you were like the doctor at the family gatherings, and everybody's asking for the free diagnoses and stuff, so. No, I think probably a lot of people probably try to avoid me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Uh, all right, so. Let's ask. Uh, let's start. Let's start our chat here with uh, kind of a general question: Red Wave or Ripple? Um, I know a couple months ago there were a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives thinking, "Hey, this is uh, lining up to be a very, very good year for Republicans." Now I'm seeing polling and trend lines that don't indicate as much. So, uh, what's your read? Well, okay. So, generally speaking, in the House, the party that is the party who holds the presidency in the first midterm election loses about 39 seats. In, 19, in 2002, George W. Bush was very popular after Afghanistan. That was his part of the Republicans actually picked up seats. That was the first time. They only picked up eight seats. That was the first time since happened since Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. Um, Ronald Reagan lost 26 seats in 1982. Bill Clinton lost 54 in 1994. And Barack Obama lost 63 in 2010. My guess is it's probably going to be right in the House. It's going to be right around 39 seats. Part of it, the reason I don't think there's going to be a red wave, is just because so many moderate and conservative Democrats who were elected in 2018 lost in 2020, meaning right now we have, a, we have a period where there are very few centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats who represent congressional, represent competitive districts. So essentially you have Democrats who the only way they would possibly lose would be in a primary, and Republicans who would, you know, winning the primary is tantamount to winning the general, to winning the, um, general election. And in terms of the United States Senate, um, I think that the Republicans, it could be very similar to what happened in 2010. Seats what they theoretically could have won, like in Ohio, um, in Georgia, and in Pennsylvania. They've nominated candidates who are kind of from outside of the political system, J.D. Vance, um, Dr. Oz, and Herschel Walker. And they're seen as somewhat kind of exotic, and they're seeing that they're having a lot of problems trying to appeal. Now that they're after winning, after running to the right in the primary, they're seeing some problems trying to appeal 
to the more centrist voters, the more centrist vote lines in the general election. Uh, this happened in 2010 in Missouri, for example. In Delaware, they nominated Republicans, nominated Christine O'Donnell. I'm not a um, witch. She's yeah, not a witch. Right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, they had Mike Castle, who was kind of an establishment, even a liberal Republican, who was supposed to win the nomination, but he lost that primary. And then it went on, and they nominated someone of an exotic candidate, and she ended up losing to Chris Kuhn. So that's the real perilous situation the Republicans are in in those three and very vital seats for them. Yeah, and you mentioned Missouri. That was Todd Akin with his legitimate yes. rape que- uh, statement yes. that uh, that tanked his campaign. And, and Republicans were set to win that one and oust Claire McCaskill, and that didn't happen either. Um, so I thought this was it. So the the general uh, conventional wisdom is, right, as you mentioned, uh, the president's party loses that first midterm in the House. And that and so you're saying is that that occurred when Trump was first elected as well, that the two years. So he's elected in 16 and in 2018, a lot of his party members lose to more conservative uh, Democrat candidates. But then they all got ousted in 2020, which seems kind of counterintuitive because Biden won. Yeah, well, I think part of it is they had, they had basically run in 2018, because usually, what usually happens in these midterm elections is there's buyer's remorse on the part of the, par, par, the party in power, and there's also the other, the other side is certainly galvanized or energized, if you will, to come out. But oftentimes this happens, is, it happened in 2006, for example, the same thing with the Democrats. The party and tries to win. They try to they try to defeat moderate and conservative Republicans by nominating somebody who's in the center. So that person will win in the midterm elections, like they did in 2018. But then in 2020, um, you know, a lot of these people had but the other side kind of wakes up, if you will, and they put an enormous amount of money in terms of trying to defeat that person. And the incumbent is only they're called frontline Democrats or frontline Republicans. The party, the other party, puts a lot of money in trying to defeat them. And they try to link that candidate to the national party, who is very unpopular in their congressional districts. But what's interesting, if you look at the 2018 congressional races in terms of those who lost in the House, with the exception of Colin Peterson, the Agriculture Committee chairman, who represented a district that went like 33 points for Trump last time, almost every single one of them was either a freshman or a sophomore member of Congress who had just been elected as kind of the anti-Trump wave. 2020, homeostasis coming in. There's a national party. It's not only about Trump. Most of those people actually lost, meaning that by two, for 2022, there are just very, very few actual moderates left in either party. And generally speaking, the people who, who tend to lose in midterm elections almost always in the general election are the moderates because they represent districts that are marginal one way or marginal the other. The one I think is interesting is Jared Gold, Congressman Golden. Uh, from from northern Maine. This is a district that goes the biggest district in east of the Mississippi, all the way from northern Maine down to about Lewiston. It's fascinating because he was the only Republican who, for example, votes against background checks, the only one that voted against Biden's stimulus plan. He represents the most Republican district that is represented by a Democrat that went 55% last time for Donald Trump. He is probably the last really kind of blue dog, really, I would say, conservative Democrat in the House. And he's somebody who's somehow been able to hold on um, by kind of knowing his constituency, if you will. He's kind of, I think, the barometer to see how the Democrats see if they can con- continue to have any conservative Democrats after the 2022 midterm elections. So, uh, which makes sense. If the district is more flippable, yes. then your moderates are the ones mm-hmm. that are more likely to benefit from that flip. 
um, yes. from from year to year, uh, cycle to cycle. So, uh, any uh, any particular uh, races in North Carolina that, uh, that that you're paying any attention to, uh, historically speaking, or to see what I mean? I, I, I mean, we don't have like Clay Aikens not on the ballot, so there's no American Idol contest winner <laughs> going on here. But uh, <laughs> is there any other race down in uh, the South that you're looking at? Uh, yeah, I think obviously the Ted Budd race in North Carolina would be interesting to see if kind of the establishment Republicans who support a McGrory uh, will come and kind of consolidate toward Ted Budd. Ted Budd, of course, had Donald Trump's endorsement. It's interesting to see if he can galvanize the Republicans. The one that I think is interesting, there are two races in Florida. The first one is the United States Senate race. Marco Rubio is running for re-election. Uh, Val Demings, who was on the shortlist last time by Joe Biden as a possible vice presidential running mate, there's a poll that came out that shows that she's actually four points ahead of registered voters, not necessarily likely voters, but mm. registered voters, and there is a little discrepancy there. I'd be interested to see this might be if this is an outlier poll because I haven't seen anything like this yet, or if he's actually if Marco Rubio is actually vulnerable in Florida. He is somewhat unpopular there. Remember, he lost to Donald Trump in Florida in the 2016 presidential election. And the other thing that I'm watching in Florida is the gubernatorial race. Um, Ron DeSantis, who is probably the preponderant frontrunner should Donald Trump not run in 2024, there's going to be a primary there. Charlie Crist, the former governor, um, one trying to be a future governor, I guess, is running against Nikki Freed, the agriculture commissioner. A poll's coming out showing Freed is actually catching up to Crist. Crist was considered the preponderant frontrunner. But what I'm interested in that race specifically is, first of all, um, the, the race is generally close. Um, the governor's ahead, current governor's ahead by about seven points. But when you get into a debate, if I'm Nikki Fried or Charlie Chris, and I say, and I, I, what I would do, I would get a piece of paper, if I was the Democrat, and I would say, I would sign it right up, right there on the stage, and serve up my full term because my entire commitment is going to be to the state of Florida, and then go up to Ron DeSantis and say, Governor DeSantis, will you sign this as well? And I'm just fascinating how Ron DeSantis would respond to that. Because on the one hand, if you say you're not serving to serve out your full term, people say, well, then you're just going to be spending all your time running for president. If you do say you're serving out your full term, then you make a promise that you can't run for president. So he's really kind of in an interesting predicament there. I think it's fascinating to see how Ron DeSantis is going to handle this. Rich Rubino, the author of The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, Political Trivia on Steroids. You can uh, find the book. Go to his Facebook page. You can see videos and such uh, and uh, link up to uh, uh, various uh, interviews that he does. Uh, also, it's available, I'm guessing, Amazon.com? Absolutely. Categorically, yes. Absolutely. Categorically, yes. <laughs> Rich, thanks for your time, sir. Always good to talk with you. Appreciate it. This is a long-distance dedication to President Biden. Because today... He's leaving from his vacation on Kiowa Island, South Carolina. He's going to fly to D.C. He's going to sign a bill. Growing the size of the IRS, hiring a bunch of auditors. Totally not going to target the middle class, which, of course, they will. And uh, then he's going to head off to Delaware for week two of his vacation. So it's going to be a good life indeed. I mean, that's such a hassle, too, right? When you take that whole first week of the vacation and then you, like, fly all the way uh, up the coast, you know, do some PR thing or whatever, and then you got to fly to your next or drive to your next vacation just back-to-back. The back-to-back week vacations is very difficult, said the common man. Lunch pail Joe just taking advantage. By the way, Best wishes for uh, First Lady Jill Biden. Sorry, 
You call her Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill Biden. And uh, she got the COVID. Double jab, double boosted, got the COVID. Anyway, let's talk about the uh, the election going on today, as a matter of fact. We've got primaries in Alaska and Wyoming. It's going to spotlight two big Republican detractors of former President Donald Trump and now two big targets of his revenge tour this election cycle. This is ABC News. Gee, I wonder why people think that they're somewhat biased. I mean, just because right there in the first sentence you call this his revenge tour. Revenge tour. Okay. Um, the incumbents, Senator Lisa Murkowski and Representative Liz Cheney, uh, may also see two diverging results at the ballot box. They may not. We don't know. Who, who can tell? Polls close in Alaska at 1 a.m. Eastern on Wednesday, so tomorrow morning. And in Wyoming, we're not going to have the polls closing until 9 p.m. tonight, Eastern time. Wyoming is the state that handed Trump his biggest margin of victory in the 2020 election. And Wyoming only has one member of Congress, and that is Liz Cheney. And uh, she has cemented herself as one of the most vocal anti-Trump members of Congress. She earned the ire of Donald Trump, his ardent supporters, and many of her fellow Republican lawmakers after she crossed party lines with nine other House Republicans to impeach him after the attack on the U.S. Capitol last year. So would that be her revenge tour? Is that is that how that works? He did something she didn't like, so she went after him. Is that revenge? Oh, no, that's justice. Oh, I see. It's funny how just a change of a word changes the entire description of what's going on, right? She got censured last month, or one month later, rather, after she voted to impeach him by the Wyoming Republican Party. Though she initially survived a leadership vote among the House GOP caucus, she was booted from her position as the number three House Republican. Uh, By the way, she also voted with Trump on like 93 percent of uh, the legislative matters. They agreed 93 percent. But she did vote to impeach him. (laughs) So uh, that might kind of hack him off. It might have hacked him off a little bit, maybe, as it would probably most people, I would assume. We also have Murkowski. Oh, and Sarah Palin looking to make a comeback. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So there are two primary or a bunch of primaries in two states, I should say, Alaska and Wyoming. Liz Cheney up for... Uh, a fight in why she's probably going to lose. I mean, that's look, everybody's predicting she's going to lose. Um, I don't, I'm not making the prediction because I don't know, but I'm just telling you that like everybody's predicting she's going to lose. She is the last of six house Republican incumbents to seek reelection after they voted to impeach Donald Trump last year. So far, only two have successfully fended off their primary challengers. Uh, David, Valado of California and Dan Newhouse of Washington. The other three representatives, Jamie Herrera Butler or Butler, 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 or uh, uh, Peter Mayer of Michigan, Mayor, Mayor, Mayor. Anyway, uh, Tom Rice of South Carolina. All three lost to Trump endorsed candidates. Cheney's main opponent is boosted by Trump. Attorney uh, Harriet Hageman is a former Republican National Committee member and also a former Cheney ally and Trump critic. She was actually an advisor to Liz Cheney in her short-lived 
2014 Senate campaign. Uh, up in Alaska, the state has scrapped its party line primary. It's closed primaries. They're going with a ranked choice voting system for its general elections. The special general election held Tuesday. Uh, it's going to be the first time Alaskan voters rank candidates on the ballot. Do you even care about how this works? So if you get more than 50% of the votes, then you win outright. But if nobody gets more than 50%, then they start, they take the bottom candidate, they whack them, take them off the list, and then they start allocating the support based on your second choice. So when you go in, you get to you get to pick them in an order. And whoever finishes last, they chop that name out, and then they rerun it and see where all of that person's support went to until somebody gets over 50%. Yeah. Yeah, we shall see. Uh, in the House, oh, by the way, so that is the Senate. Uh, you got Lisa Murkowski, and uh, she is one of seven Republican senators who voted to convict Trump uh, in his impe- uh, impeachment trial last year. And uh, she was also censured by her state Republican Party. But she has built a profile, according to ABC News, as one of the Senate's most moderate Republicans repeatedly crossing political lines, notably supporting abortion access, voting against Trump-nominated Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court, and negotiating last year's infrastructure spending bill. Um, her main opponent, Kelly Shibaka, is a former commissioner of the Alaska Department of Administration. Then you've got the Alaska House race the, the in Congress, and Sarah Palin is uh, backed by Trump, and she's trying to return to elected office. She's trying to get into the House of Representatives. Uh, she's got uh, several candidates running against her, again, in one of these ranked-choice primaries. She's going to face off against Nicholas Begich III, Republican heir to a local Democratic dynasty whose family members include a former representative and state senator, as well as Democrat Mary Peltola, a former Alaska state representative. Um, This is from Steve Peoples and Mead Gruva at AP News, the Associated Press. Win or lose, in deep red Wyoming, the 56-year-old daughter of Vice President Dick Cheney is vowing not to disappear from national politics. She's contemplating a 2024 presidential bid. Now, I'm not sure if a massive blowout um, is going to uh, convince her one way or the other you know, to, to run or not run. But I, I really think this is a good idea. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause look, if Trump gets in right, Trump is, if he, if he says he's going to run for reelection, then you're going to have him. And then you got uh, Liz Cheney could run and she could be like sort of the anti Trump candidate. And, um, and then maybe throw in somebody that's, that's kind of Trump ish, but not Trump to give people a third choice uh, and I guess maybe people are thinking that's Ron DeSantis, right? And that'll totally keep Trump from winning because it worked very well, what, in 2016 with John Kasich playing the role of Liz Cheney and Ted Cruz playing the role of Ron DeSantis, right? I'm sure this will work out differently, though. <laughs> uh, let's see. Tuesday's contests in Wyoming and Alaska offer one of the final tests for Trump and his brand of hardline politics. Really? Hardline politics? That's Trump? That's the thing that's always always killed me about the left's reaction and the media's reaction. But I repeat myself, uh, their reaction to Donald Trump. Trump is actually a pretty moderate guy, politically speaking. 
the stuff that he advanced, uh, particularly at the beginning, if if Democrats wanted to actually get stuff done, all they had to do was flatter him and be the last ones to talk to him before he left the room and went on to the stage. He's a deal maker. He would have cut all sorts of deals with them. He tried to. He made offers. And at one point, he what was the issue? He said something about him. I think it was the immigration debate. And remember, they're sitting at the table and he makes some comment. And all of a sudden, the Republican leaders are like, oh, no, 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 no. And then Trump came out later and reversed himself, of course. But his natural tendency is to say, all right, what do you want? What do they want? All right, uh, let's do a deal. He wants credit for the deal. And Democrats never use that as an opportunity to get their agenda passed, which they could have actually. Um, So far, the former president has largely dominated the fight to shape the GOP in his image, having helped install loyalists in key general election matchups from Arizona to Georgia to Pennsylvania. Um, I don't deny that Donald Trump has... uh, what is this word? What do they say that he has uh, transformed? Yeah, he has shaped the GOP in his image. I would agree with that. The question is, how much so? What is the GOP going to do? Because Donald Trump is not he's not going to live forever. Despite what some people may think, he's not going to live forever and he's not going to be involved in politics forever And he may not run again. He may run again and lose. He may run again, win, and then after that, he's done. What does the party look like going forward? What what attributes of Trumpism does the party take and keep and foster? Are there elements that they shun? Mitch McConnell's not going to be around forever, right? There's going to be a changing of the guard. And so when that happens, how does Trumpism affect Republican and conservative politics for years forward, because I got a pretty good idea the impact it has had on left wing politics, which needs a boogeyman left wing politics. And and look, right wing politics needs one too. It, everybody benefits from having, you know, the villain of the story. But le- leftism as a philosophy is built upon greed and envy and it is built upon uh, identifying your opponent, your adversary, as the, the party to blame for all that is wrong. That, that is literally what, what leftism is, right? That's class envy, class warfare. That's what, uh, you know, the radical theories, radical queer theories, uh, critical race theories, like all of the neo-Marxism strain from Gramsci, all of that stuff, it all, it, it all comes from the same wellspring of greed and envy, targeting opponents saying they're the ones that did all of this to us, and if only we just took what they had, we just threw them out of power, then we would have it all ourselves. This is one of the concerns I have, by the way, about populism, is that it shares some of that same sort of strain, that that blame them for my problems, that that strain. That's the stuff that makes me kind of, eh. It makes me feel a little icky. That's just me. What do I know? Just a radio host. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So there's a story about spending in uh, some of the U.S. Senate races. 
Is the GOP canceling ad spending in Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin? Or did the New York Times get it wrong? That is the headline at hotair.com by Allah Pundit. Big news, if true, the polling lately has been discouraging for Blake Masters and especially Dr. Oz in uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania, respectively. If the National Republican Senatorial Committee is already looking down the road and aiming to scale back on spending there, it'd be flashing sirens, right, that the party believes that the candidates are likely to lose and the money should be shifted and better spent elsewhere. And control of the U.S. Senate might very well turn on what happens in Arizona and in Pennsylvania. Now, scaling back Wisconsin seems kind of weird, hard to justify. Democrats just nominated a far leftist Mandela Barnes. It's a 50-50 state. And you got Ron Johnson, who is an incumbent, running for re-election. So it seems kind of weird that you would pull money from that race. But let's step back a second. Ala Pundit says, is it true that the NRSC is cutting spending or has the New York Times grossly overhyped what is going on? So the NRSC's communications director said, I said that uh, you you do this in order to essentially uh, cancel solo expenditures on ads. Instead, you team up with the candidates campaigns on coordinated buys because candidates can buy airtime more cheaply. So by canceling their ads, they just give them the money, give the campaigns the money, and then the campaigns can get cheaper rates. So the NRSC says it's not abandoning Dr. Oz or Blake Masters. To do so this early in the race would be crazy. When you got an unpopular Democrat president, worst inflation in 40 years, right? Maybe they got some really bad internal polling. The two weeks, uh, the two men rather have uh, maybe six weeks to change these numbers. And if they don't, then, yeah, probably the Republican national groups start bailing. But if this is how the race is looking early October, they're going to start trying to plow all the money into carrying Herschel Walker in Georgia, Adam Laxalt in Nevada uh, to try to get them over the finish line. There's another factor that's weighing down uh, the Republicans, and that is Donald Trump. For months, Republicans have complained that he's sucking up most of the small donor fundraising oxygen by constantly squeezing his fans for cash and then not spending his money to help Republican candidates down ballot. Now, you could say he shouldn't do that. He doesn't have to do that. Screw them. He's raising it all on his own. He's going to need all of it. Republicans can do it all on their on their own. Fine. But what that means is that the NRSC is competing with him for donations And that's not a competition they're going to win. Following the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago, it may be that the share of Republican money that's going to Trump rather than the party has grown even more lopsided as righties rage donate to Trump. Unless Trump's political action committee starts throwing big bucks around to help candidates like Dr. Oz or Masters who are in trouble, he's going to inadvertently deprive the GOP of the wherewithal to rescue them. I'm not so sure it's inadvertent, by the way. But that would mean, think about it, between endorsing terrible candidates and vacuuming up available donor money, Donald Trump could end up costing the Republican Party Senate seats for the second election cycle in a row. 
By the time the campaign is over, he could be responsible for Raphael Warnock having won two different Senate elections in Georgia in as many years. Somehow, it always seems to me there are a lot of people on the right that I think agree with the left that it's just easier to to go after Republicans. <laughs> it's always struck me as the case. Thank <laughs> you.